and welcome to Device Week, a podcast from MedTech Insight. I'm Executive Editor Sean Schmidt, and I'm joined today by Senior Reporters Brian Bosetta and Ferdos Al-Farouk, also known as Danny. Danny, we'll talk to you in a few moments about the U.S. Food and Drug Administration's release of its annual list of priority guidance documents. But first, let's check in with Brian, who covered for MedTechInsight.com some big changes the FDA made this week to regulating breast implants. Potential risks associated with the implants is one of the more serious topics the FDA has been grappling with over the past few years. How to regulate the devices is a priority for the agency because breast augmentations are performed quite frequently here in the U.S. In fact, it's the most common cosmetic procedure in the United States, with roughly 400,000 women getting implants each year, most for cosmetic reasons, but around 100,000 have reconstructive surgery after mastectomies. So, Brian, the FDA put out some new rules on breast implants this past Wednesday, October 27th. So give us a quick rundown of what's going on. Thanks, Sean. Basically, the FDA put some teeth into how it regulates these devices by making some voluntary recommendations that were made to the agency mandatory. After receiving many complaints over the years regarding breast implants, the FDA convened an advisory panel in 2019 to figure out how to make implants safer. And many of these recommendations ended up in the agency's final guidance on implants in 2020. So they're no longer voluntary. That's right. Okay, so what are some of the new mandates? First, manufacturers must add a box warning message on implant labels, the agency's most serious type of warning, informing patients about potential risks. Which are? Well, cancer for one, specifically a rare cancer of the immune system, anaplastic large cell lymphoma. So we're clearly talking about serious risks here. Yes. Back in August 2020, in fact, the FDA reported on several illnesses and deaths associated with breast implant surgery including 36 cancer deaths. Now, most of these cancers were linked to implants manufactured by Allergen, which the company pulled off the market. But cancer is still a risk factor. Absolutely. Now, you mentioned several illnesses. I assume you mean other than cancer. Yes. There are many side effects that have been reported besides cancer, which the FDA says patients have to know about. Such as? There's actually a condition called breast implant illness, or BII. It has a wide range of symptoms after surgery, such as joint muscle pain, chronic fatigue, trouble breathing and sleeping, hair loss, stomach issues, anxiety. There have even been reports of autoimmune and connective tissue disorders such as lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. So that's a lot. Quite a few. The new labeling also requires a description of the implants, including what they're made of. Uh, And the FDA also wants labels to include the risks of rupture with silicone implants and to advise patients who have them to get screened regularly to detect any leakage, even if they don't have symptoms. The agency says the screening should start between five and six years after surgery, then every two to three years after that, unless, of course, there are symptoms, then it should be right away. So besides requiring companies to include these risks on their labeling, what else has the FDA done, as you said, to put more teeth into its regs? It's requiring that prior to surgery, doctors provide the patient with a brochure, the patient decision checklist, which basically outlines all the health risks we've discussed, but includes other information such as when implants should and shouldn't be used, alternatives to surgery, all of which are intended to give patients as much knowledge prior to the procedure as possible so they can make the most informed decision. The checklist also informs patients that the FDA does not consider implants lifetime devices and that the longer they're in, 
the greater chance of adverse effects and potentially more surgery down the road. More surgery meaning implant removal. Potentially. In fact, the checklist also mentions that as many as 20% of women who get implants have them removed within 8 to 10 years. Okay, but in terms of enforcement, what has the FDA done to make sure the patients are informed of all of this before they get the surgery? Well, two things. One, the FDA is only allowing sales and distribution of implants to those doctors and facilities that provide patients with the safety information. The checklist. Correct. And two, the checklist must not only be reviewed and signed by the patient, but by the surgeon doing the procedure as well. So unlike before, when a patient might not have seen the fine print on a box or label, now they'll literally have to read the risks and sign off on them before going through with the surgery, right? That's the idea. Interesting. It's certainly something to keep our eyes on as these rules roll out. Thanks for that report, Brian. Now, let's turn to Danny. You wrote a piece this week for MedTechInsight.com about the FDA putting out its list of priority guidances for the current 2022 fiscal year, which began on October 1st and runs through September 30th of next year. So tell us, which guidance stocks are most important to the agency? Any interesting topics? Yes, thanks, Sean. As longtime readers of MedTechInsight.com and our Device Week listeners know, at about this time every year, the FDA's Device Center publishes two lists of guidances, a list A of guidances that the agency will give top priority to to complete over the next fiscal year, and a list B of guidances that it will try finishing if regulators have enough time. The lists themselves are broken down into final and draft guidances the agency plans on publishing. And to answer your question, Sean, this year, one of the key guidances that caught my attention was the FDA wants to finalize a guidance on clinical device support software, or CDS. Now, the agency has published a draft of the CDS guidance twice after some major concerns from industry. Readers can go check out what those concerns were in our past reporting, but eventually the FDA said last year that they were going to finalize the guidance in 2021. But because of the pandemic, it appears they weren't able to meet that goal and are now planning on finalizing the guidance in 2022. In fact, they put that guidance all the way up on top of their overall list. So what else on the list stood out to you? Well, more broadly speaking, the FDA indicated that they want to produce more digital health guidances. We've seen quite a lot of focus on digital health in the agency over the past few years, and that goes naturally with the boom we're seeing in that specific sector of the medtech industry. The FDA proposed new draft guidances on their A-list for software assurance and cybersecurity. They also proposed developing a much-anticipated draft guidance on artificial intelligence and machine learning on the B-list, and a draft guidance on determining medical software risk level. Why such an emphasis on these topics, do you think? Well, I think a lot of this ties into the work the FDA is still doing in developing a new pathway for certain medical software products through its pre-certification program. That makes sense. Okay, so when I read your article at MedTechInsight.com about these A and B lists for guidance stocks, one that jumped out at me was a guidance that would address all of those emergency use authorizations or EUAs that the FDA handed out over the course of the pandemic. Yeah, that's a big one, too. That guidance would be on how companies can transition those EUAs for their products to full marketing status. But this isn't really surprising at all. And industry has been asking what the agency plans to do with all these products after the public health emergency is over. 
For its part, the FDA has already been advising companies on how to change the status of these products and what additional information regulators need to permanently allow them on the market. These new guidances, I think, will just formalize the work they are already doing. In terms of other guidances that the FDA is working on related to the pandemic, it is also planning to propose a draft guidance on what information it needs from manufacturers to either avert medical device shortages or manage them if they happen. Of course, that's been a huge topic for the industry since the pandemic began, and the FDA will take all that it has learned as a result to develop the guidance. So nothing really surprising then. All of this sounds like what we expected based on the issues the FDA has been prioritizing this past year anyway. Anything else that got your attention? Not really. As you notice, pretty much what we expected. The agency also proposed guidances related to remanufacturing products, which has been a big topic of late, as well as guidances on electronic product applications and how to conduct post-market studies, which I think ties in with its vision for the National Health Evaluation System for Health IT, or NEST. But you can find a full list of the guidances the FDA plans to work on in my story at medtechinsight.com. Great. Thanks for your report, Danny. And that wraps up this week's Device Week podcast. As Danny said, head on over to medtechinsight.com to find his story on those FDA guidance docs, as well as Brian's piece on the agency's regulation of breast implants. And I think this is a good time to mention that MedTech Insight has launched a new podcast series called Speaking of MedTech, which focuses on everything medical devices. It's hosted by yours truly, as well as former FDA Device Center Compliance Director Steve Silverman. We're recording Episode 3 next week on the FDA's harmonization of its quality system regulation. So check it out wherever you get your podcasts. And always remember, you can find us on Twitter at MedTech underscore Insight. Until next time, thanks for listening.